everyone to episode one of The Behavioural Investor. The title of this episode is called Putting Ben to Work. What we're going to do is interview Ben, find out a bit about him and see how we can put his skills to work in favour of our financial success. So let's start off Ben with hearing from you about your work experience, education and general interests. Thanks, Will. I'm looking forward to this episode. I, I'm a bit hesitant about the name of it, putting Ben to work, but we can go with it for now and we'll see how it rolls out. I'm Ben Thackeray. My background is I'm a chartered accountant. So I have a degree in commerce and Asian studies from ANU. I've worked for a number of years at large corporate advisory firms, corporate recovery firms, and also a number of years in the commercial environment working in strategy for organizations. My general interests are around investing, both real estate, stock market, any way you can make some money. My other outside of the workplace, I like to travel overseas. As I said, I studied Asian studies and I a fair bit of time in Japan studying the language. I actually went to Yokohama National University over there, improved my language skills, but also participated in Japanese normal courses with Japanese students over there. So that's background about myself. Great. You sound like the sort of cultivated and conscientious individual that we're looking for, Ben. So yeah, I mean, I have to ask, what's your most important financial goal? It's interesting. It's one that many people have. It's financial freedom, obviously. The ability to have enough finances behind you, enough income that you're able to make decisions in your life that you think are the most appropriate ones for yourself. What do you mean by financial freedom? It's not a, a common idea. I certainly didn't grow up hearing about it and no one told me about it at school or, or university. So I guess I'm interested in more detail about that. And also, when did you come up with this idea? What was going on in your life when you had this idea? So there's a couple of things there. I, I think financial freedom can mean different things to different people. It may be just having... Um, a few spare dollars on yourself for some people, but still recognising that you do need to work. That a certain amount of financial freedom in just having spare cash or spare money or access to it at one end of the scale. I think at the other end of the scale, it's having enough funds to be able to do big and large scale projects. Take an extreme would be Elon Musk, or he has enough funds and other qualities about himself that he's able to do large-scale projects such as the Boring Company over and above Tesla and SpaceX. So there's a broad range of what financial freedom. For myself, what it means is being in the financial position that if I was to lose my job, it wouldn't matter to my financial safety, my ability to house myself, feed myself, look after my health. They're the fundamental things for myself that I am had the target to achieve. Wow, that's a really worthy goal. And I think inside most of us, we would love to have that independence. I have to say it's interesting to hear almost a theme of liberation coming from you, given that what might be thought of as a more conservative background, in, again, in terms of your career and education. It's interesting to hear those sorts of ideas coming from you. Well, it's interesting how I came up with the idea. And I'm sorry, I didn't come up with the idea, but it's interesting how... I got interested in the topic. I'm a big fan of 
the modern day philosopher Alain de Buton, and he did a BBC documentary series on the great philosophers. And one of those philosophers that he talks around is Epicurus. One of the key things with Epicurus was that he said that you can become happy if you are able to achieve three things in your life. One of them is to have friends in your life. It's very important to have friends and spend as much time with those friends as possible. The second thing is to be free. And by that, he didn't mean just freedom from slavery, for example, but to be financially free from dictatorship or the determinism of a boss. So you want to achieve your financial freedom. The third one, just to round it out, is that you want to be able to have enough time to contemplate uh, life, contemplate things that you've done wrong and to improve yourself. So when I watched that documentary, I found it very logical and also very inspiring. And that's what drove me to want to achieve those three things and in particular, the financial freedom. I'm inspired too. Could you tell us the name again of that philosopher and what you watched? His name is Alain de Buton. He's originally a Swiss-English philosopher. He's quite famous for writing books such as Status Anxiety, Consolations of Philosophy, probably half a dozen, if not a dozen other books. But the documentary, you could probably find it on YouTube now. I think it's actually called The Consolations of Philosophy. And it's a probably a 10-part series on each episode he talks around his most inspiring or favourite philosophers and includes characters such as Nietzsche, but also Epicurus. That was an episode that appealed to me. You're talking about the ideas of liberation through effective financial management, if you like, or putting yourself in a, a good enough financial position to be liberated. So I want you to consider now this point that according to the US Federal Reserve, the median household net worth of Americans in their retirement is less than $300,000. Moving along or considering what you were just saying in response to the last point, what do you have to say about this average financial outcome for Americans? Yeah, $300,000. It's an attractive amount of money, but it's not, depending on your age, it's possibly not enough money to be able to retire on, especially if you're younger than that. If you're older than that, 300000 it may provide you with a certain style of life, certain type of lifestyle, I should say, but it does miss the potential that could be achieved in one's own lifetime. But it also, it's an interesting statistic because it, it looks at net worth of an individual that's one of the things with our society is that we often think in terms of one perspective one perspective is just your own life and achieving certain things within that life but there's are other perspectives and other cultures have them have different ideas around their life view so west eastern societies talk and have a lot world view that's a little bit more community orientated, a little bit more family orientated. But 300,000, I would hope that I would be able to achieve something a little bit larger than that. I can see how you're drawing also on your education in Asian studies to, to inform you about some alternative views or about the potential maybe for a different outcome for people. So could you maybe expand on what 
alternatives there might be for people to to achieve a different outcome than a mere three hundred thousand dollars at the end of their lives. Yeah, there's a really good book called Family Fortunes, and that was written by a guy called William Bonner, and it's a book that changed my perspective from what I was trying to detail just then around viewing your financial outcomes just within your own life to something a little bit different. In the book, Bonner details how an individual can set up, regardless of what their background is, but set up a dynasty for themselves and future generations that is extremely uh, profitable, that's extremely long-term and fraught with danger but and risks, but also um, something that's worth pursuing and that's something that's bigger than just yourself. So I can give you an example for that if you if you wanted to, to get a bit of an, a, a view of it. Yeah, I'd love you to step us through maybe something concrete that people can visualise. And what do you mean by long-term here? Are you talking about many generations or something? Or? Yeah, so when a lot of us think about investing, we think in terms of years. It may be an investment that lasts one year, five, ten. Some of us even think longer term. 20 years, but very few of us think about investing over multiple generations. It gets back to the idea of creating a dynasty. Are you able to set up the infrastructure, the resources, the culture required to be able to invest over multiple generations, knowing that you may not be the, the main beneficiary of the investment, but you're doing something that's bigger than yourself. So what he talks about is fundamentally, there's a three-step process. The first step is that if you are going to try to invest over multiple generations and you need to have a family, um, you need to have children. If you don't, then you're not 100% precluded from it, but it would require you to have extended family members who wanted to participate in the wealth generation over a number of years. So step number one is have your family. Step number two is to develop the appropriate culture, as I was saying, within that family. So you need to all be aligned in how you intend to invest money, work together, have structures in place, frameworks in place for making decisions and working as a, a group unit for a bigger cause. Then the third part, and he actually argues it's the least important part, it's investing and building up the, the wealth. Given that we're looking at multiple generations, you don't necessarily have to have an end date. It doesn't have to be 60 years from now. It doesn't have to be 100 years from now. As long as you're doing something towards the positive in terms of financial contribution, you can, given a long enough time frame, achieve very large amounts of capital. I'd like to just zoom in a bit on one word in particular. You use the word compounding. This is a, an uncommon term in regular conversation, but I have a feeling that it, it means yeah. a lot. Could, could you expand a bit on that? So compounding, there's two or three key words that people need to understand. The first one is the yield or return that you get from an investment. So 
we could go through a couple of basic examples with that. The first one would be when you put money into the bank, let's say $100, and the bank gives you 2% interest on your $100 invested each year. So that 2% at the end of that first year will get you $102 in total that you've had got. And if you decide to keep that money invested or in, in the bank account, then you're getting 2% on $102. So you won't just get an extra $2 at the end of that second year. You will get $2 plus 2% of the $2 that you originally received on interest. So you're getting money from the money that you earned previously. And that's the idea of compounding. You can see it also in, not every investment has compounding. Some require you to reinvest. So for example, bonds, you would get interest on a bond, but you would then have to repurchase the bond at the end of the term to be able to compound on it. But with the share market, for example, if you are able to reinvest the dividends that you get from a company, and also keep the capital growth that you've, you've got, you end up compounding. So you're getting money on top of the money that you earned previously. So two words there. First one is yield or returns. That's the percentage that you're getting in either growth or dividends if it's the stock market. And the second one is compounding. It's the dividends and the growth that you're getting from the previous dividends and growth. And that can have a very powerful effect over time if you're able to stay stay with the course and allow that compounding effect and it gets back to what we were saying in a previous episode episode zero the behavioral gap can really undermine the compounding impact you use the example of a two percent compounding rate are there ways to make that rate higher and also what can we really expect over the truly long term, like you were talking about multiple generations. Can you expand on truly what people could expect if they did manage to solve the behavior gap and stay the course? Yeah, so there's a small example that I worked out and it may seem challenging, but I think it, it's useful to understand what could be achieved. If a person was to start investing money from the age of 18, let's assume that they started work. Now, over the long run, returns from the share market range between 7% to 10%, sometimes up to 11%, depending on what index you're looking at. But if we take the lower end of that scale, let's say your annual returns are only 7.5%. And let's say that individual at the age of 18 starts to invest $35,000 a year. Now that's a high, large number, a very high number for someone that's 18. So it may be a little bit un unachievable, but let's stay with this example nonetheless. And then the second year they invest another 35,000 and then so on throughout their life. When you look at the first 10 years, the returns that you're getting, so you've invested 35,000 a year. Over 10 years, you've contributed $350,000. But at the end of that 10 years, you would have $532,000 if the compounding effect works with the 7.5% return that we talked about. Wow, so that's basically an extra $200,000 for free? Essentially, that is what it is. Yeah, that's correct. Are you talking about free money here? <laughs> that's what, 
Well, free is interesting because you are taking on some risk. Um, so the term free is open to interpretation. You're lending just the way banks lend money to people and then they charge people interest on that. If you want to say that the interest that the interest payments that banks receive is free money, then that's one way to interpret it, acting as a bank. You're kind of being a banker to the businesses that you're investing in, kind of. Yeah, that's correct. You're lending okay. money and what you're asking for in return is the dividend payments and the hope that the, someone else will purchase the shares in the future. Okay, so maybe another way to put it is it's a way to seriously turbocharge your savings. Turbocharge, yeah. You could call it turbocharging. Let's go back to the terms that we used before, compounding impact. Okay, great. All right, so I'm, interested. I'm interested. Yeah, so let's keep going with the, that snowball effect. So we've got 532000 after 10 years, and then each year you still continue to contribute $35,000. At the end of 20 years, you get to $1.6 million after 20 years. Okay. So we are still able to achieve that 7.5% uh, return. Then let's keep going and see how far we go. So let's say by the time you're 48, should probably mention just to tie it back to the example that I gave with uh, the book from Family Fortunes. Let's assume that you did at the age 30 have a child. So your son starts is born, son or daughter, doesn't matter. And then by the time that you become 48, your son is then 18. And at that stage, if you have been able to contribute 35,000 each year over those 30, 30 odd years, you'll have approximately $3.9 million in total capital. And let's also make the assumption, and this is just fun, it's let's assume that you're going to continue contributing 35,000 each year and your son is going to contribute $35,000 as well. So suddenly you're both contributing. And this goes back to the idea of you've got to create a family, you've got to create a family culture, a set of rules, a set of guidelines and culture that you're working all together. So suddenly you're now contributing. Are you sure it's not a cult? <laughs> it could be a cult. It could be I mean, I feel like... There's all sorts of discussion we could have here about the incentives and the outcomes. Yeah, so that it's not slavery, but it's something that, yeah. But no, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Where, 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 does, where, does, where does a cult uh, start and when does a culture finish? That's, maybe we do that as a, another podcast. I'm but, sure anyone can see the, the utility in having millions of dollars and they're could be amazing things you could do that's the point you're making if you all work together so yeah don't let me stop you I'm, I'm, we're all listening with bated breath about the outcome <laughs> so you're both contributing $35,000 yeah we're a good 30 odd years into the future now so maybe 30, 35,000 contribution by your son is not as onerous as it was what it was for yourself and I should say son or daughter just use yep. it as a, as a an example, then $70,000 are contributed. Then by the time, let's say we get to, by the time you turn 65 and the son is then 35, you're both contributing the 70,000, your portfolio, let's call it a portfolio, will be $16.9 million. And let's say then at 65, you decide to retire and you're no longer contributing. And then the son is 
son or daughter is taking over and just contributing 35,000 themselves until... Which, which is ridiculous because you have a net worth of $16 million, but you're still, you know, out there holding the fields at $35,000 a year. Yeah, <laughs> we could do the, do the mathematics. That's called dedication to the cause. We could do the mathematics of what the $35,000 is in today's dollars terms quite quickly, but I just haven't done it quite yet. That's all right. So the first child is taking over and they'll keep investing until their son or daughter turns 18. If that would be your grandson or granddaughter, and then they start contributing once again the $35,000. So if we're looking out into, let's see how far into the future we've gone, 60 years into the future from when the 18-year-old starts, we've then got a portfolio when the grandson or granddaughter starts contributing, we've got a portfolio of $44 million. So that's 60 years, and then that keeps going. And by the time... If we make the assumption we don't add great-grandchildren or additional family members. And this is just one person from each generation too. There is an overlap between them. There's that overlap where they both add, yeah, but it is one person from each generation. There is an overlap in time when they both contribute 35000 But by the end of the grandchild's time, his retirement, 108 years into the future, which is a long time to think about, when that grandson or granddaughter turns 65. By my calculations, it's at 7.5% compound. They will have $1.35 billion. Okay. So this leads neatly into the next question. What do you see as the reasons why the average person does not steadfastly execute on this kind of long-term compounding plan? But a billion dollars is incredibly enticing. Well, I also have to ask the question... When have you ever heard of anyone talking about this? It, I've never heard of it before myself. I'm 36 years old. It's the first time I've ever discussed this idea. I, yeah, I agree with you. It's just not out there. And people don't think in these terms. It comes back to how our society is being run and how we run our society. You know, it's top down or bottom up. It's not something that people are talking about. It's very much a society where we focus on our own individual needs our own individual wants where we have businesses that are set up to make us think that our wants are our needs therefore we are spending money we don't while there is a lot of emphasis on the family there is not that emphasis in western culture on really working together as a family and thinking in this mindset over multiple generations yeah i kind of have to agree it is more in the east that I have heard the term dynasty used for families. We do hear it occasionally. We all know the Rothschilds. We've heard of famous families such as the Queen of England, for example, and her family, and how they've carried that monarchy on through multiple, multiple generations. So it's not unheard of. But I think from an individualistic society that we've built in the West, you can contrast it to... Possibly, and I don't have a strong knowledge about this, but North American or Spanish or Latin American cultures, I think they're a fair bit more family orientated than what we are in the West. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're long-term orientated, though. Okay. The idea of long-term goals, that's kind of what this is all about, and I feel like it puts it out of reach psychologically. Like, I'm liberating as, as well, though, rather than 
suffering from the mental stress of not having the things that you want by recognizing that you're trying to get something bigger, bigger than just yourself, achieve something. It puts those small wants, those small desires off to the side quite easily. You're no longer thinking about, should I buy an iPhone? Should I buy a red sports car? You can start to think about something a little bit longer term, a little bit bigger than just your own initial short-term needs. Actually, talking about cars, the average new car, like a Camry or something, is actually about 35000 bucks. Really? Okay. So, yeah, so using your example there, if you instead put that $35,000 into a, an index fund and let it compound, you can quickly see the, the financial consequences of certain spending decisions. The other thing to recognize is though, well, it would be very difficult in the first few years to contribute the 35000 I I do think people can recognize that after a number of years of developing up your skills in a profession or a career or developing up your own business, 35000 both due to increasing your own wage, but also the effect of inflation, the 35000 contribution by an individual is not as onerous, obviously, in, in the future than what it is in those early years. And the other point that I'll make is I didn't want to be too negative on people buying the things that they necessarily want. I think you can buy the things you want as long as you're aware of it's a want rather than a need. If you're able to contribute the 35000 as the example that we gave, and still have surplus funds on the side to buy other things that you're enjoying. There's no reason that you couldn't do that. Another way to think about reducing the burden is that we've just been talking about one earner. Most families have the husband and wife working. So considering, for example, in Australia, the average income is $85,000 a year. So a combined income is therefore $170,000 a year. Surely $35,000 worth of savings is, is possible between the two of them. So, and the other thing to consider is that just because I use the example of $35,000 doesn't mean that any person or couple needs to actually use that as what they are targeting. For example, I've got the spreadsheet set up so that we can calculate quite quickly. Let's say you would only contribute $10,000 a year and that was the number that went through multiple generations. I think that's probably in particular for, for younger people who are just starting off on their first job or their first business, 10000 could be a, a little bit more reasonable in terms of uh, an initial goal. So if I put in 10000 and play out the same scenario that we just talked through, you end up getting, once again, in 108 years, long time frame, at the retirement of the grandchild, $386 million. So that's well, still a substantial amount. Yeah, and that, that's still stupendous, yeah. I think maybe one response a lot of people have about all of this is how is this all worth it? And it still kind of sounds like a cult. But when you have this amount of wealth, you can do some truly amazing things. I think maybe that's also something, just talking about the effect of culture and upbringing, doing truly amazing things is not maybe encouraged as much as it could be. 
And I know just from my amateurish interest in the space industry, Gilmore is a, a rocket company on the Gold Coast and their latest funding round for a space launch they're tr trying to do, they, they only needed $30 million for their rocket. If you're looking at $300 million, that's a legitimate rocket company that we're talking about. Yeah, so you're, you can start to, when you do start to have that sort of capital behind you, you can imagine that you, you're able to leverage that, and that. You know, you don't necessarily have to spend it. You can leverage that capacity to be doing outrageously good things. I think all of us, we would love to be involved in that kind of family with that sort of leadership and vision. So I think that's a way to assuage people's uh, fears that, yeah, we're starting a cult. <laughs> it's, it's a very good book. I do recommend that people read it. The books that I enjoy the most aren't necessarily the books that give me knowledge. It's more books that change my perspective on things. This is a book that will, especially if you're from a standard family like myself, will change your perspective on things. Could you tell us the name of the author at the book again? It's called Family Fortunes, and the author is William Bonner. So William, okay. and the surname is Bonner, B-O-N-N-E-R. And needless to say, we'll put the link to the sheet that you've used for this calculation in the show notes, and people can have a play themselves. I think it'll help change some minds and inspire some people. We discussed a little bit about the barriers that stop people from actually thinking about this possibility in the first place, and then... Once they have realized that it's a possibility, then you're faced with the, the challenge of, of repeating this saving and investing behavior over an incredibly long time. Some consistency is required there. And I guess we brought up the, a way to entice people to stay the course, for example, imagining the amazing things you could do, basically. But I think there's scope here for maybe exploring a bit more about how human nature can take us off the course, given that it's us that are the tools that we're using ultimately to execute on a plan like this. So I'm thinking maybe we could, in future episodes, interview a psychologist. What do you think about that idea? We do need to talk to psychologists. We do need to understand where our weaknesses are and how we would overcome them, both from a psychological perspective, but also potentially setting up structures, legal structures or mechanisms to ensure that given the process that individuals may want to go down, that it is carried out. I think it's, it'll be important for us to talk to psychologists. I think it will also be important for us to talk to possibly legal experts who can talk in a little bit more detail around trusts, around investing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just to protect that kind of wealth as well make, makes you understand the need for, for these sorts of professions. You've mentioned a pretty large number here. Do you know any mathematicians? I think it would be good to have one of those on and uh, talk us through compounding a bit more. Maybe they have some other good examples. Yeah, I do. I do know a mathematician. Hopefully I can get him to come along and he's someone that's interested in investing who's quite aware of not just the numbers but also the investing side of the numbers. So he's quite keen on, on investing firms such as Renaissance. I can possibly invite him along. All right. Great. So let me see uh, what psychologist I can find and yeah, let us know how you go finding us a, a mathematician. Sounds like good fun. <laughs>